Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for how you've been with us so far this morning. We ask, Lord God, that you will be with us as we gather round the Word, be it here or in Sunday school. In Jesus' name, Amen. At the time, it was the worst commercial airline crash in history. On 15th of February 1947, flight C-114, an internal Colombian flight from Barranquilla in the northeast of the country to the capital Bogota, crashed into a cloud-covered Mount El Tablazo at 10,500 feet, instantly killing all 53 people on board. Amongst the fatalities and the ones that made the headlines were some Colombian professional footballers. But also on board was a young man from New York called Glenn Chambers. He was on his way to Quito in Ecuador to begin work at Voice of the Andes, the first Christian radio station in the world. And earlier in his journey, Chambers had passed through Miami airport and whilst there he had decided he wanted to drop his mother a note. But he didn't have any paper to hand so he picked up a piece that he found on the airport floor which had a single word advertisement on it. He hastily scribbled his message all around that word and he popped it into a post box before boarding the plane. And it arrived with his mother after news of the crash. She opened the envelope, she unfolded the paper, and there, staring at her in the face, was this one word advertisement with a question she had been asking herself since she heard the news. Why? At one level it was totally inexplicable. The pilots had diverted from their recommended flight path and were flying too low towards a mountain that was hidden by clouds. They couldn't see where they were going. But that's not really the why question we're thinking about, is it? Now, a young guy starting out, he's devoted his life to God and it's snuffed out before it's even begun. What possible purpose can that have? Over the summer we have been looking at a particular question. I've been asking what God's like, I've been saying that God's primary revelation of himself was in sending Jesus into the world. Different parts of our New Testament speak about Jesus being the exact representation of God's being or the visible image of the invisible God. When you think about it, those are staggering statements to use to describe an individual who had actually been walking around Galilee and Jerusalem within the lifetime of those who were writing those words and certainly some of those reading them. 
But I would say that if you want to know what God is like, we need to look at Jesus and that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus and God always will be like Jesus. And I've said that the primary impulse behind everything God does is love. God reaches out to us in love. But he doesn't force himself on us. But in the last couple of weeks, I've been asking a slightly different question, which is, what good is that kind of God? We might think we could do with God being a little bit more coercive and forcing his will of creation. We might think it would solve a lot more of our problems, from the big international scale down to the personal struggles. We can all face sorrow and it quite simply doesn't make any sense. And the one word in the advert around which Glenn Chambers wrote his note can scream at us and we can be found something. Why? Oh yeah, there are those who will have their reasons. At an individual level, I have encountered people going through serious struggles only to have someone very helpfully telling them that they must have stepped outside God's will or they just need more faith or something equally helpful like that. Harmfully. Twenty years ago yesterday, I sat in a pub called the Bristol Pair in Selly Oak, Birmingham, watching the events unfold at the Twin Towers of the World Trade Centre. And back then, there were some who claimed that God had removed his protection from America because they were becoming increasingly immoral. Or a few years back, a UKIP politician claimed that severe flooding in parts of the country was God's punishment for the government legalising same-sex marriage. I lived, or I used to live, just down the road from one of the areas, Bridgewater. I never knew it was such a hotbed for the gay scene, really. But natural disaster strikes, it causes mass destruction, and there will always be someone ready to describe it, or ascribe it to some sinners, that they have deemed worthy of punishment. And quite often they're even quite triumphal as the fact. They're pronouncing the judge, finally, God's doing something about it. And some seem to have this image of a God who, to borrow an idea from Bradley Jerzak, he's like a cosmic regulator. He signs off permission for some events but withholds it for others according to some great master plan. And there might be something about us that can find some sort of comfort or meaning or reason in there, certainly if we're looking at it from the distance of it happening to someone else. We are reason-seeking beings, and that quest is as old as us. One of the earliest parts of our Bible to be written is the book of Job, which deals with the question of, why does bad stuff happen to a good person? And that questioning was present in the passage we shared together this morning. Jesus was walking through Jerusalem with his disciples. They encounter a man born blind. And, uh, you know, we... How do they know he was born blind? Well, we don't know. We just know. They just did. 
And the disciples asked Jesus, at first what seems a really strange question. Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? One thing that is strange about this question is, you're asking, how can someone who was born blind have done something? You know, this isn't karma coming back to bite him. You know, ideas about previous lives have never really had that much play in Jewish or Christian thought. Although oddly, there was a school of thought within Judaism that suggested the child could sin in the womb. But it was the standard assumption that if something was wrong, there had to be a reason. There had to be a why. And Jesus refutes that kind of reason. He says, it's neither him nor his parents. In many ways, Jesus' answer is, that's just the way it is. Life is lumpy and messy. And however much you want it to, it doesn't give you straightforward answers. And all sorts of attempts have been made to uh, try to bridge the gap between our understandings of God as good and loving and the nature of the world as we experience it. And they all have one thing in common. They all fall short. There is no point in denial or blame games. And yet, from a Christian perspective, there are two things which we hold to be true. One is that evil exists. And it can defy a sense or purpose. But the other one is that God is good. We can't think our way to that or prove that. It's a, it's a faith statement. And it's worth recognising right at the outset. Reason alone will never bridge the gap between those two things. We need God to give us a revelation that, that can encompass both his goodness and the reality of affliction. And that's where the Christ-like God comes into the picture. And in particular, where a crucified saviour comes into the picture. The cross is the place where the evil of the world and the goodness of God meet. But it isn't a way of explaining anything. Because that would only get us so far. A Christ-like God doesn't explain it all. He overcomes it. That Friday in Jerusalem, sometime around AD 30, Jesus enters into the lowest, lowest depths of human experience. It's true that throughout his life Jesus had faced all sorts of struggle. He emptied himself of all the trappings of godliness. He didn't enter life from a position of the privileged. You know, he didn't sort of turn up at, at, you know, at the manger and get an upgrade. He was part of a people who were all too often on the wrong end of history. They certainly were when, they, when he stepped into their story. Uh, yeah, and in his life, he knew poverty. He was a child refugee. His family were viewed for, with suspicion. He was misunderstood. He was mocked. He was disparaged. People lied about him. Before his resurrection, 
not even his own brothers believed him. At one stage, his family tried to stage an intervention because they thought he was mad. And events reached their climax over that Thursday and Friday around Passover, around AD 30. Even those closest to him deserted. One of them betrayed him, one denied even knowing him. The rest of them ran away within hours of having declared that they would stand with him to the very end. And then he was falsely accused, he was beaten, mocked, abused, tortured, humiliated. Ultimately, he was murdered. But on that day, he experienced one thing he hadn't experienced until that moment. He had never had that sense that God had forgotten him or abandoned him. Until that moment. That present which had sustained them all these years in the wilderness, in those key moments when the voice had come and said, you're my son. I love you. That closeness he experienced in prayer. And then in that moment, the lights went bright. And God seemed nowhere to be found. The words left such an impression on those who heard it. That they kept them in the original Aramaic rather than translating them into Greek. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd been through the whole gamut of human experience. But that sense of being utterly alone in the universe, he'd never experienced that until now. In the fourth century AD, there was a bishop and theologian called Gregory of Nazianaeus, and I haven't a clue how that's pronounced. But he said this, what is not assumed is not redeemed. It was a way of saying that if Jesus was going to save us, he had to become totally human and he had to experience everything that it means to be human. And he was, he was writing at a time when there were lots of people who were saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus can't have a physical body, but he was God inside. And he was saying, no, Jesus is totally human, yet totally God. And if Jesus didn't have that experience of feeling utterly alone, of feeling that even God hadn't totally forgotten him, he would fall short of what was needed. But at the cross, Jesus experiences the lowest point 
of the human condition. And still gave himself, trusting in the God that he could not see. From the tomb to the womb, from the cradle to the grave, in Jesus the Word became flesh and endured the depths of the human condition. But it reaches its climax at a cross as the life of the Saviour is given. And through the gaps in his torn flesh, life floods into the world. You see, at the cross we see that God is neither a triumphant intervener nor a passive non-mover. The cross challenges what it means to think of God as all-powerful. And oh yeah, God has established limits of the universe, but within them, your natural laws of human free will were allowed to operate but at the cross we see we are not abandoned to them that there is this third force at work in the world grace but God's care for the world doesn't come by forcing his will on the world it comes through unrelenting love and boundless grace it's not magical it's poured into the world by human partners who pray for and seek God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus, God has entered into everything it means to be human and experience life in this world. Not just at the cross, but especially at the And at the cross he reaches the lowest point. He endures all the world has to throw at him. But it doesn't speak the final word. The last words belong to God. And words of grace, love, mercy, resurrection. See, the cross doesn't solve the problem of evil and suffering by explaining it. Instead, God embraces the inexplicable and overcomes it in grace and resurrection. So we don't have to live in some kind of denial about the world as it is, or even seek to explain it. Life is messy, and all too often it defies explanation. And there are times we feel we are at the mercy of nature human sinfulness and what others have done to us, what we've done to ourselves. There are times we can feel God has forsaken us and forgotten us. 
but by coming amongst us in Jesus through the incarnation of the cross. Jesus has been there. He understands us. He's experienced. He sent his spirit to live in us. And he also not just experiences it in a man back there. By his spirit, he experiences what we experience because he is living in us. Christ God has experienced that sense of being alone in the universe. It's once said that at the cross, the cross is the day that God becomes an atheist. That sense of being forsaken. He's experienced before us and for us. But it doesn't speak the last word. Grace does that. So the world can do its worst, but because of Jesus, affliction is a defeated foe. Through love, he has achieved far more than force ever could. Jesus doesn't explain the chasm between a good God and a cruel world. He spans it. He confronts it. Confronts it. He enters it. He overcomes it. Through Jesus' broken body, grace, love and mercy flow to the whole world. He doesn't ask us to explain it. He asks us to simply meet him at the cross. See him take on all the pain and suffering of the world. Including our pain. Our sin. Our suffering. See him enter the depths of the darkness of human experience. And trust him that he's been there before us. And even when we can't sense him, he will be there in our darkest moments. And even when we can't experience him, he will speak the final word. Grace and peace be with you.